while we were singing, I got an update on uh, Wanda Breaker. Um, um, my message says she's now in Mercy Room 4526, and that's good because she was in the ICU. Uh, she has uh, an infection, and um, she's being treated for that. As she said, they say uh, she's had a tough afternoon, so no visitors tonight to allow her to rest. And um, so there you go, no visitors. I really, I'm, I'm praying that she's well enough so that later on I can tell her we'll just be that way then. So, you know, but uh, I, I think they've got the right treatment for her, and that's good. Um, so tonight, no pictures, I'm sorry, but uh, this is, I'll tell you what I was doing. We're going to pick up in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, and I'm going to confess something. I get to reading through 1 John, and I want to tell John, get to the point. I don't know if you felt that way, because he seems like he keeps going back and forth and back and forth, and light and darkness, life and death and love and hate. It's like you're just kind of circling around, man. What's the point? I don't know. Is it fair? Can you say that to the biblical writers? I guess, I, you know, I mean. What do they care? They wrote the Bible, not me. But, um, you know, that's, that's me. And I'm, I'm letting you know that, too, to let you know that it's okay sometimes to fuss and struggle and to wonder, you know, what, what, what's this all about? And, um, and, and, and so I'm doing that, and so I was trying to break it down. Then I found out I'm, I'm looking at the wrong words, okay? And there are some key words that are going to take us through this that I thought John just keeps trying to make these, you know, light, dark, life, death. That's just the, that's secondary. The more important stuff is, he's going to talk about appearing, knowing, and remaining. Okay, so the, we're going to watch those three words. And, 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 and I, I, I don't know how to answer for this, but in, the, in your English, they don't always show up as the same word. Um, so... I'm going to try to give you a sense of this. Well, first of all, let's, I'm going to go ahead and read from, uh, what have I got here? This is the NIV. Let's hear it run through. Uh, just, we're, just going to, we're going to fly over it, and then we're going to come back. Uh, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Those who do not do what is right are not God's children, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a fellow believer is a murderer. And you know that no murderers have eternal life in them. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 
This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who keep his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Now, depending on how it's translated, you you can end up in this section with a, a word salad uh, you know, a lot of different words, and you're wondering, how, how do these all fit together? It's all a lot of great ideas, but how does it all fit together? Notice how this ends in verse 24, the Spirit. Okay, you go back to, the, to uh, chapter 3. Actually, it's the, it's the last part of chapter 2, and he's talking about the anointing. Uh, he's going to talk about the, the Spirit or the anointing from the Holy One, and, and then in, um, he's going to... And, and, I think that's where you get this idea, the anointing, and then he's going to, and then that allows him to go through all of that so he can end up talking about the Spirit. What gets us from point A to point B are those three words about knowing, about appearing, and remaining. Because what John is really concerned with, I mean, they, they understand light, dark, love, hate. They get that. But what, th- those are the easy ones to grasp. You should love and not hate. We understand that. But what those things point to is they point to what it means for one group to, be, to appear as the children of God versus another group that appears as the children of the evil one. And we're going to go into what the meaning of this word appears is. And then he also wants them to have confidence. Did you notice the word confidence that came up in there? That has to do with knowing. And that idea of knowing, of being certain, of having confidence, runs through the whole letter. And then he talks about remaining or abiding. So I want to show you. Now now let's go back. Let's drive through this and let's pick up those those stops along the way. Uh, If we pick up in verse 10, this is going to be a little more wooden translation, okay? Uh, He says, it's in this that the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Okay, that's that word for appearing, and you have different words there. The the original word has to do with the the appearance or the revealing of something. Uh, something Something hidden has become made known. It's become made manifest. That word is also at the root of a word that we use in English, epiphany, okay? An epiphany is when you have an aha moment. It's when you see things. It's when you recognize things. Well, not the epi part, but the uh, the epiphany, the funny part, okay? Yeah, the funny part of it. That's the part of it that's the manifest, that's the appearing part. That's the word that's used here. He's saying that the children of God and the children of the devil show themselves, or they're made known, they're they're shown 
By what? Well, in this. And he picks up. Everyone who does not practice righteousness is of God. And the one who does not love his brother is not of God. He said that's how the difference is revealed. There's some sign. Yeah, I think this is an important statement because, again, part of the problem that John may be addressing is that you've got a group of people saying, well, we're the ones who are in, you know, we're the ones who are close to the Father and you're not. And you have a group claiming to know more or a group claiming to have more wisdom or more knowledge or more inside secrets. And John's going to tell them, no, it's really easy to tell the difference. And yet he makes it clear. He shows you what the signs are. You know, we've had sermons for generations about the identifying marks of the church. And the idea was is that the true church of, of Christ, the true church of God, would reveal itself in certain things, in practices. But some of the big stuff gets left off those, those traditional, those well-known lists. And right here is one. The children of God are made known by their love for others. And that fits consistently with what Christ taught. That everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's how the children of God are made known. They're also made known because they practice righteousness. So he's starting out this section with verse 10 where he's saying, here's, here's, here's how it's going to be, here are the signs. Here, here, here's how you recognize it. Um, let me put it like this. What he's saying here is this isn't so much about knowledge, but he's giving you the clues to look for, okay? You know, in nature, we're always trying to find differences between things. I still can't figure out how to identify poison ivy. And I think it's because I've been so confused my whole life. And don't try to help me tonight. Just don't, just don't bother. I just don't touch any of them. That's how I get around it. And, and then if I get it, I, you know, I'll just itch. But uh, because I remember adults, when I was a child, they'd argue. And no, it's got three leaves, that's poison ivy. No, if it's got five. No, if it's got three. No, if it's got five. And I was like, I, I don't even know anymore. But if, if it's anywhere between three and five, I just stay away from them. Now, I've got the little snake thing down that uh, red next to black is a friend of Jack, but red next to yellow will kill a fellow, okay? So I know that about the two snakes that kind of look alike. I got that one down. I figure the plant's not going to kill me, you know, so, well, shouldn't. But anyway, um, so we we have these things that we want to know. Well, John's just given us one of those things, and he said, look, children of God versus children of the devil, they got, there's, there's ways of telling them apart. Practicing righteousness, loving one another. Well, let's keep going, verse 11. He says, uh, because this is the message which you heard uh, from the beginning, that we should love one another. He's saying that's 101, that's basic, that's principle, loving one another. That's not new. That's an original message. That's not new wisdom. That's not new revelation. That is, uh, that's there from the beginning. Okay, that's foundational, he's saying. And then he's going to give you some examples. Don't be like Cain. The wicked one, he slew his brother. And and why did he do that? Why did he slay him? Because his works were wicked and Cain's were righteous, or Abel's were righteous. So he's using Cain and Abel as both an example. And and by the way, he's he's going to get all the mileage he can out of the Cain and Abel image. Because they know the story. They understand the story. They've heard it. And a story can communicate far more than a simple principle. So with that one story, he's going to say, look, you've got Cain, you've got Abel. 
it becomes clear that Cain's works are wicked. It becomes clear that Abel's works are righteous. That sets up the problem. And then you've got uh, hate, and then that leads to murder. And that makes it very obvious that Cain is a child of the wicked one and not a child of God. So, he, um, uh, verse 13 then, he's going to go one step further. We, in the past, we've got Cain and Abel. Now let's bring it up to date. He says, so you, um, how does he say it here? He says, so, uh, you know, so he tells them this fact about they should be like, they should not be like Cain, they should be like Abel. And then he says, you shouldn't be surprised. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't be surprised. Don't, don't try to figure it out if the world hates you. He says, um, that's actually a word of encouragement. And uh, what he's saying is, don't, you know, this shouldn't surprise you if you're receiving hatred from those who are not God's children, who are of the world. And, um, you know, that might be a word we really need to pay a lot of attention to today. Because I think more and more Christians, and in this country, we're becoming more anxious about people who don't understand the truth. And we're becoming more and more anxious about why people are suddenly opposed to us. John's saying, quit trying to figure that out. Just stick to the faith. Stick to the truth. They'll figure it out or they won't. But we've got to quit trying to make people like us. And we've got to start just preaching the truth. Now, that, by the way, not worrying if people like you is not a license to be unkind or to be... Um, well, to be a jerk, okay? I mean, that doesn't give you a license to be rude. Uh, I don't care what people think. I'll act however I want. No, because the children of God are made manifest by what? By their righteousness and by their love. So how we behave is very important. But what people think about that is something that we can't control. Verse 14, here we get our next word. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren, because we love one another. He's saying that when we have that love for one another, that, and I said, at first he said that was an indicator. That was an indicator of the children of God. Now he's saying it's something that we can know. It's something that we can, that we can have confidence in. He's going to use this word to know quite often. And I think most of your English translations are consistent with the translation of that. Uh, and he says, when we, when, when we have that love, we know then that we've passed from death. And, and by the way, now he's connecting death and the world and Cain and hate and murder. All of those have just been connected in one category uh, or one area. And he's going to contrast that with love and righteousness over here on the other side. Okay. So you know that you're in that group that has nothing to do with death and the world and hatred when you love the brethren. By contrast, the one who does not love his brother, and here's our third word, abides in death. This word abide or remain, and it gets translated a lot of different ways. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting word, and, and I'll admit, I'm still trying to figure this word out. Um, and I really want to understand how they use it and what they mean by it. 
because I've recognized that abide is not a word that we use in English much. Um, we sing it in our songs, but um, you know, we, we don't abide very often. Uh, to abide means that there's a, a permanence, there's an endurance, there's a, there's a, a, a kind of a steadfastness. In fact, uh, Aristotle uses the word to make a distinction between the stars and the planets. He says the stars abide. They remain. They're fixed. You know, they move, but they don't, ever, they, 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 they don't change position. Uh, but the planets, planets race across the sky. You know, they'll be in different places. You never know when they're going to be there. So, so they're kind of temporary and unpredictable. But the stars remain fixed. I mean, if you're an ancient like Aristotle and you're living in the ancient world and you're looking for things that you can count on, you can count on the, on the stars not being changing like the weather. So you can, you know, you, you come to count on those things. And, uh, and, you know, navigators would use those and they would fix position by those. And, you know, you could tell times and seasons by those. That's what abiding is. So those who abide in Christ or abide in death are not changing. It's interesting then that he says, the one who doesn't love his brother or sister, he's choosing to remain in death. He hasn't really made the change. He hasn't moved over from death to life. And so he says you can have people who can claim that they're the children of God, but if they continue to hate, guess what? They're remaining in death. Hatred, you know, I know it's... It's a strong thing to truly hate someone. Now, you know, if you tell me that you, uh, you, know, you hate pistachio ice cream, that's fine. Pistachio ice cream's feelings haven't been hurt, you know, and I don't think, I don't think anybody's really in uh, danger of hellfire for that. But to hate other people is a very strong thing. And it, it's not just a problem with the history of what's happened between, you know, when individuals hate each other, they either don't understand each other or they fear one another or there's been some history there. But what it does is it starts to corrupt. It starts to corrupt us. So every time that we think that we're doing well by hating someone else, we're poisoning ourselves. Uh, one writer, I can't remember her name, she said that. Um, uh, choosing to hold a grudge against someone is like uh, swallowing poison and hoping the rat will die. You know, I mean, you, it, it, it doesn't work that way. You're just, you're just killing yourself. And, and, and here he's saying that, you know, it, it, he's, he's putting it in stark terms. If you continue to hate another, then you are remaining in death. Everyone, verse 15, that hates his or her brother, now he's just up the ante, is a murderer. Oh, now wait a second. I may hate people, but I haven't murdered anybody. Right. Well, maybe not, but where, where, could this, where could this idea be coming from, ask yourself? Where could this idea that hate is the equivalent to murder, where could that be coming from? Well, number one, the, um, uh, it could be coming from the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is constantly taking the teaching of the, of the old law, which he doesn't discount and discard, but he says, look, you've heard it said, but I'm going to say to you, 
And he'll always take the, the, the simple legalistic practice of it, and he'll say, but there's much more behind it. There's more that has to do with who we are. So, for example, um, he says, uh, you know, you, you may, you know, you've heard, don't commit adultery. He said, that's good, that's good. But, he says, I'm going to say to you that when you have lust in your heart, that, that, that's adultery. He's saying you're on your way. And he's not being overly legalistic. He's saying that the thought and the intent, that gives birth to the action. And by the way, that ties into the story of Cain. There is a moment in the story of Cain where Cain is feeling hate towards his brother, where he is angry and jealous towards his brother. And God intervenes and says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have its way with you. You've got to master it. So there's that moment where Cain can resist the the sin that's wanting to have its way with him, but tragically, he doesn't. And it gives way. That sin then gives, you know, gives birth to the, to the murder that he commits. Well, that's the other thing that I think John is tapping into here. Not just the teaching of Jesus, but also the Cain and Abel story all over again. He's saying that that hate might as well be murder. And, 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 and I think he's, what he's doing is he's raising the level of hatred. Now, hatred, by the way, for him is not just that intense, angry feeling, but it's also the lack of love. It's the lack of an active love that, do something, that does something. We'll, we'll see that in a moment. Uh, verse 15, he says, And you know, now here's another no word, And you know that any murderer does not have eternal life, what? Remaining in him. Now he's brought them together. You can know that a murderer does not have eternal life remaining. There's that remaining word, that abiding word again. So now you're seeing two ways start to form. The way of death, the way of life. The way of light, you know, the way of darkness. If death, which side is death on? Uh, Okay, the way of death and the way of uh, uh, life. I got to get it all this straight. Okay, and uh, and darkness and light. But what he's doing is he's contrasting two ways. And it removes a gray area. For John, there's not a lot of gray area in this. He's saying these are, these are very different paths. And this idea of there being two ways or two paths, a fork in the road, it's an ancient way of thinking about morals and the way that you conduct your life. And he says you've got to choose. One way leads to death. One way leads to life. And which way you're going to remain in will matter for that. Um, so... Verse 16, by this we have known, there's the no word again, we have known love because he laid down his life for us. Okay. Now they know that. That's foundational. Christ shows love towards us. Christ shows love for his, let's just say, for his brothers and sisters. Why? Because He shows love to the degree that he will give his life for them. And if that's the case, then we ought to also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now we have the example. If we had the example of Cain, who kills his brother, now we have the example of Christ, who dies for his brother. The the two ways are getting more and more distinct. 
as we go along here. And he's saying, you can know this, and you've got to choose which way you are going to remain in. And it's going to make it clear. It's going to make it manifest, and it's going to appear to you that one of these is the children of God, and one's the children of the wicked one. Um, Verse 17. Here now, he's going to make it practical. Okay, so we're supposed to love one another. What does this look like? Whoever has... um, Now, this is, by the way, is a different word for life. Uh, This is not the same word for life that he's he's using in those earlier verses. But again, we don't see that in English, okay? Here he's saying whoever has the, uh, you know, the good good things of life or the means to, you know, you've got means. You can provide, okay? That's what he's talking about here. This is like the the basics to provide for life. Whoever has that, uh, but at the same time sees his brother or sister with need and ignores it. Of course, you, you know, you, you'll have different translations in English. And this is where it gets fun to, to know the original language. Uh, King James did something interesting with that. And I think all of you who are reading King James, doesn't it say something like bowels of compassion? <laughs> um, and then you start to think, well, my goodness, what's he talking about here? And... Uh, you know, I mean, come on, you've got to have fun with this. I mean, people probably saw that in King James for years. And I, what they're doing is they're, they're actually the translators of the King James in English were adding a little bit to tell you that, okay, the, the Greek idea doesn't really fit with the English idea, okay? See, in English, if we love someone, we love them what? With what organ? With our heart. We love them with our heart. My professor who taught me about these translations, he used to work with an Indian tribe, and he said that uh, in, their, in their language, you, you, you loved someone. You didn't love them with your heart. You'd love them with your liver. I don't know why, but, you know, it makes just as much sense as loving someone with your heart, doesn't it? I mean, you know, these are just organs that provide functions. Why not? They both run, you know, chemicals and stuff through your body. Well, for the Greeks... The seed of emotions and the way you felt all of that was it was in your gut, okay? And we, we have something kind of like that. But for us, it's, it's intuition. But for them, compassion came from the gut. So that's why you get this funny King James translation, because in Greek, it basically says if you see your brother in need and, and you close off your bowels to him. And, and uh, you know, that's a bit shocking. And... Uh, but what he's saying is you're closing. Yeah, we would make, it would make more sense in English to say you close off your heart. It's the same thing. Same thing no matter how you translate it. What he's saying is if you see someone in need and you say, oh, well, you know, that's just, that's just pitiful. And you do nothing about it, but you have the means to do something about it. He's saying that's not love. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to do something for everyone until you spend yourself to the point that you have nothing left. But he's talking about that nearness of someone that it's, you know, you can help, but you choose not to. He's actually going to say that that's not only is that not love, he's actually questioning, really his question, and he brings up the other word, abide. He says, if that happens, if you do that, then he's asking a rhetorical question. How then can the love of God remain in you? How does that love abide in you if it seems to fade out when it's needed? That's a good question. And he's beginning to show us. He's making it very clear who the children of 
God are and who the children of the wicked went. And what do the children of God do? They practice righteousness, which means they live it. They don't just believe it, they live it. And they love one another. Verse 18, little children, we should not love in word nor with tongue, but in work and in truth. That right there means that you don't ever have to say, I love you. Uh, so, you know, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, he's saying that this is what Jesus talks about when he describes the Pharisees who gave lip service you know, to their righteousness. He says, you, it's, it's not enough to just say that you love. You've got to show it too. It's hand in hand. In work and in truth, or in deed and in truth, means that there's going to be a, um, a sincerity there, and it's going to show up. It's going to be made manifest in what we do. Now, I hope we're starting to see the consistency of thought that John is building here. Verse 19, and by this, we know. He's letting us know something again. We can know that we are of the truth, and uh, when we're... When, when we are before him, our hearts can convince us. What he's about to go into here is um, he's saying that, by the way, at first he's been concerned about a, um, the judgment of others. And he's giving them what they need to know so that they can be convinced and know that the children of God, they do this. But what if that judgment that we experience is internal? Because often you can see people who have no confidence, they're worried, they're concerned, that they stand condemned before God. I love this scripture because of that. Because he says, there is one who is greater than your heart. And sometimes that's the message we need to hear. Because the word of condemnation or the voice of condemnation may not come from others. I, I will tell you, if you ever find yourself trying to do enough good works so that God will forgive you, you need to stop. Because that's not the appropriate way. We do good works because we're his children. We do good works because his love remains in us. It abides in us. If we're trying to do it to appease God, then we're going to end up doing it for all the wrong reasons. It's going to be a never-satisfying effort. And, and chances are, we're not going to practice love, agape. We're going to practice something else. We're going to practice sloppy agape, okay? Because we're, we're, we're going to be doing it not out of love for others, but to somehow earn our salvation. And that motivation is, um, I mean, think about that. If we go and we help someone and they say, why are you doing this? Well, because God loves me and his love abides in me and it calls me to love other people. It's a pretty good answer. If someone says, why are you doing this? Well, I didn't really want to, but I don't want to go to hell. Because that doesn't satisfy anyone. That's, that's totally the wrong reason to do this. But, you know, God's got these ideas that I'm supposed to help people. Don't be a cranky giver. Um, the, um, the motivation's all wrong. So, so this verse, verse 20, he's saying that when our hearts condemn us, there is one who is greater than our hearts and who knows all things. Sometime there's a lesson that, that, that we're going to give out of 1 Corinthians 4 where Paul says that he doesn't 
take into stock how other people judge him, and for that matter, he doesn't even judge himself. It means that our judgment of ourself is not better than God's judgment. God can judge you better than you can judge yourself. And we've got to start learning that. Because sometimes we will condemn ourselves even though God has set us free. And I, and I ask you, you know, isn't that just as insulting to God as somebody else condemning you or you condemning somebody else? Because what you're doing is you're saying to God, God, I know better than you. I mean, if you really knew me, then you wouldn't really like me. Okay, God does really know you, and he knows you better than you know yourself because he's the creator. And we need, to, we need to keep that in mind. Verse 21, he says, if our hearts condemn us, we've got boldness or assurance when we go to God that whatever we ask, we may receive from him. And this isn't the selfish asking. This isn't the, you know, going to Santa with your Christmas list. This is, the, <clears throat> this is that desire of relationship and, that, and that, that asking, that making a request and a petition to God uh, for the things that we need and, for, and on behalf of others. And it's, on, and it's about keeping his commandments. He says we have that assurance uh, even when our hearts condemn us. Why? Because we keep his commandments and we practice the things that please him. We have assurance, he says, because we keep commandments. Now, what commandments are those? Well, he's already told us what the original commandment is. Love one another. I mean, that's the only commandment he's really had in view here. I mean, it's not that he's dismissing all other commandments, but that's the one he's really interested in. And then he's also interested in practicing righteousness. He's already gone over that. What makes it clear that we can, you know, that these are the children of God? They practice righteousness and they love one another. Well, he's finishing with that idea right here too. And he says, when we do those things, when we keep his commandments and we, um, and we practice what pleases him, he says, then we have that assurance and we can we can ask him, let me ask you that, who can go before a king and ask the king with assurance, knowing that there's a kind of a boldness there, that the king will grant the request? The children of the king. The children of the, of the father. You know, kids can, can sometimes, you know, I mean, different ages, I know I don't want to generalize here, but... Um, you know, uh, sometimes we worry that they can be selfish or they can be spoiled. Maybe what we ought to say is, you know, that it's really, it's almost like, you know, kids talking to grandparents. I don't know. But even with the parent-child relationship, there is a boldness there because a child will ask for what the child needs at, at some point when it's sincere. You know, I'm hungry. I need to eat. If the kid's not over 15, you know, he might have a hard time finding something to eat. I don't know, you know, but especially little kids. And they'll cry and they'll tell you what they need. And they don't worry that their crying is annoying anyone. They're just letting you know. He says in the same way, when we know that we're the children of God, we can ask about those things that we really truly need. And we're going to have that confidence because we're keeping the commandments to love and we're practicing the righteousness that pleases him. It's a relationship. We're on that path of light, and we're remaining in his life. I hope that's given you some sense of what's going on in, in 1 John chapter 3. Stick with that because we're going to build on that when we get to chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we'll pick this up next week. Right now, we're going to sing a song, and as we 
sing this song. If you want to partake of the communion, that's been prepared in room 100. And so you can go there during this song. And for the rest of us, Don Griffin will dismiss us in prayer. Let's stand and sing.